Good morning. Years ago now, one of my favourite saints, a man well known for his humility and gentleness, his quiet determination rather than outbursts of anger and forceful speech, he, he was certainly never been a hothead or a firebrand. Years ago, he sat next to me in the Moore College Chapel, and as the service continued, it became clear he was becoming more and more distressed. When the service was over, we walked out together and I asked him what was wrong. He told me that he had found the flippant casualness of the way the service had been led offensive. The way God had been addressed went beyond familiarity and intimacy to almost indifferent disrespect. The service leader had been trying to be relaxed, uh, to avoid the stuffy formality of, that he associated with prayer book services, to make things a little bit more like a family gathering, to have a little bit of fun as he ambled through the introduction. And the rest of the service resembled more an episode of Saturday Night Live than a gathering of the redeemed in the presence of the living God, the King of all the universe. In the 21st century, we don't do awe, wonder and worship well. Who can blame us? It's way beyond our everyday experience. Most of our world leaders command little respect. There are few people before whose presence we would tremble. What's more, in the churches, through fear of the excesses of some and in reaction to, to the oppressive seriousness of an earlier age, we have even tended to avoid the language of worship. Where that language is still used, it's been strangely turned inward. Worship is a spiritual, emotional response within me, rather than the proclamation of God's worth. For some, it's been reduced down to the way the music makes me feel about God. My friend was not advocating a return to lifeless formality or a style of Christian discipleship that has no place for laughter and fun that's not moved by music but remains trapped in archaic forms of language and relationship. No, that's not what he wanted. But he wondered whether we really believe that this gathering of God's people in this place, wherever this place is, is the most significant gathering in this place at this moment. He wondered whether we really believe that the God who gives us and all his creatures every breath and before whom we must answer for every idle word is really here among us. Would we act any different if we believe that. As we travel through the book of Revelation and come to chapters 4 and 5 this morning, we arrive at the point at which the curtain is pulled back so that we can see what is really going on in the world. Before that happens, though, what we see around us is the usual blend of joy and suffering, of pleasure and pain. And increasingly, we also see the good creation convulsing, a growing sense of chaos and confusion, war and the consequences of an abuse of our environment, mounting hostility to the gospel and the God of the gospel. All those things are very real to us. 
They press in on us so that we cannot avoid them. And yet we're about to be invited to go behind this appearance of things to understand the reality beyond our senses, what we see and hear and smell and touch. And what is shown to us will raise again this question of awe and wonder and worship. The two chapters form two parts of the vision. Chapter 4, a call to worship the eternal creator. Chapter 5, a call to worship the victorious redeemer. And it is the one triune God who is both. So let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you might take from us this morning everything that would keep us from hearing your word. Would you please address us? And what we need to hear from you, please let us hear. And where we need to change in the light of it, please enable us to change. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look with me at Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If we, if we knew our Old Testaments better, we'd be bowled over by the way almost every aspect of this vision is reminiscent of the Old Testament. What John saw when he accepted the invitation, when he went through the open door and took notice of what is really going on in the universe, is what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. What Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, what Daniel saw in Daniel 7. It is something that can only be seen in the spirit. It has to be made known to us. It cannot be known by just looking at the world around us. It's not natural knowledge. 
It is in the spirit. And at its most basic, what John sees is this. There is a throne at the centre of all things, and it is not empty. There is a throne at the centre of all things, and it is not empty. It might look like the world is freewheeling into disaster. It certainly seemed like that when John had this vision, and it points at things like that today. But always and right now, there is an unimaginably great power directing all things as he intends. The throne is not empty. God is still in control. Truly for John and for his first readers, the march of the Roman legions didn't seem so final in that light. For us in our time, Putin's destruction of Ukraine the manipulation of world markets by those who enrich themselves at the expense of others, political corruption, the raging of the anti-God squad, none of it seems so consequential in the light of this reality. The only real throne is not empty and the one who sits upon it is too dazzling even to look at. Now that should steady your nerves, shouldn't it? John doesn't spend time trying to describe the one who sits upon the throne. His attention is drawn not to what the king looks like, but what is happening around him. Again, there's an almost bewildering amount of imagery and fulfilment of biblical Old Testament themes. The rainbow and the enduring faithfulness and mercy of God promised after the flood. The lightning and thunder and the powerful presence of God when he gathered his redeemed people around at Mount Sinai. The throne set up around the central throne, ready for the unfolding of God's judgment, as Daniel saw while he was in exile. Here there are 24 thrones, one for each of the patriarchs, one for each of the apostles. So God's faithfulness, his mercy, his powerful redeeming purpose his judgment, the fulfilment of all that was said to his people in the Old Testament and the New, it all comes together here. 24 elders, four living creatures. Perhaps the living creatures embody the great virtues of nobility and strength and wisdom and speed. Or perhaps they should just be understood together as representing all animate creation. Old Testament and New Testament and all creation represented there before and around the throne. Nevertheless, what interests John is not so much who is there around the throne, but what they do. The living creatures who see everything, after all, they have eyes in the front and behind, they speak and they keep on speaking. They speak of what they see and their words are very simple. Do you see them there in verse 8? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They say three things about the one seated on the throne. He is holy. His holiness exceeds all other holiness. That's why it's said three times. He's almighty with a power that surpasses all others. And he's eternal. He was before time, 
He is through all time and he is to come beyond all time. Each of these things is true. At every point he's perfect and beyond comparison. But the verses that follow make clear that it's the fact that he's seated on the throne and that he's eternal, that he stands over all time and lives forever and ever, that is the real focus of their attention. This holy and almighty God, the one who really rules in the universe, he is eternal. He knows the end from the beginning. He is constant throughout all the ups and downs of time as we experience it. He is the one who lives forever and ever. Our experience of the world is that everything fades. Everything disintegrates over time. Nothing lasts and nothing is constant. But the reality is that God never fades. He never disintegrates over time. He lasts and he is constant. Pure and powerful and permanent. When you think about that, it's enormous comfort, isn't it? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And what is the reaction to this declaration of God's holiness and his power and his constancy? For the first of three times in these two chapters, the 24 elders, all of them, fall down before him. And here's the thing. They don't and they can't make light of this. The only response, the only response to this declaration of God's worth is to fall down before him. He is no one to be trifled with. Though they have the privilege of sitting on 24 thrones before him, they know they cannot just sit there and they cannot just stand there either. They fall down before him. Brothers and sisters, he is our father. We are his much-loved children. He has gone to such lengths to have us for himself. But it's still right to tremble before him. And it's those who've fallen, not those caught up with their own sense of spiritual euphoria, but those who know the truth about the one seated on the throne who lives forever and ever and who have fallen down before him, it's they who say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And as they say it, they cast their crowns before him, those golden crowns. They cannot hold on to status or position before him, he and he alone is worthy of glory and honour and power because he and he alone created all things. And it's by his will, just by his will, that they existed and were created. The holy and almighty God who lives forever and ever is the one who created all things, our Lord and our God, who is worthy? Not that their emotions overcame them at that moment. It was the great truth that he alone is worthy to receive glory and honour and power. Now what John saw going on in heaven 
is a wonderful comfort to a broken and targeted people. But it is at the same time a remarkable challenge to us, I think. For we need to ask ourselves, have we domesticated awe and wonder and worship? When you see the reaction of the 24 elders, when you hear their declaration of God's worthiness, have we so made worship about us and how we feel, relaxed or euphoric, that we've forgotten it is really about him and how worthy he is? And what happens next? Takes both the, that comfort and that challenge further. Take a look with me at chapter 5. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Centuries before this was written, Daniel had a vision that of that day when God's judgment was to be delivered. Thrones were set in place, the Ancient of Days took his seat, the books were opened, and one like a son of man was presented before him and given dominion and glory and a kingdom. He's the one who implements God's purpose and sets up the dominion that will never pass away and the kingdom that will never be destroyed. And here in Revelation 5, that scene is being played out again. But this time, the emphasis is on the worthiness of the one who steps forward and opens the scroll and on why he's worthy. It's a terrific scene, isn't it? The magnificent reigning figure, 
the one who sits enthroned in the centre of all reality, he has in his hand a document, a scroll, rolled and sealed, rolled and sealed, rolled and sealed, seven times. A document of immense significance. We are meant to realise that here in this document is recorded the determined will of God. All of history is waiting for this document to be opened, for these seals to be broken and for its contents to be read and God's purpose to be fulfilled at last. But that purpose cannot be enacted by just anybody. And for one terrible moment, as the universe holds its breath, standing at the cusp of what it has been waiting for from the beginning, it seems as if there's nobody qualified, nobody worth worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals and to enact the will of God. And John breaks down at that devastating prospect, which is why the next bit is so glorious. One of the elders said to John, it's okay, don't weep. There is someone who is worthy. The will of God will be accomplished and a most powerful, victorious figure will do it. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who has conquered, conquered what? Conquered everything. The one who has conquered, he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And that's when John sees him. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, a lamb standing, as though it had been slain. As one writer puts it, a lamb with the marks of slaughter on it. He is the one who takes the scroll and he is the one who enacts the eternal purpose of God. At first glance, it's an impossible paradox, isn't it? The elder told him it was the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, a mighty conqueror who would do it. And when he sees him, he's a slain lamb standing there. I don't know whether John remembered those words of another John, John the Baptist, as he saw Jesus walking by past the river, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I'm pretty sure he remembered what he'd heard at the beginning of this book. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. His triumph was in his death. That's how he's conquered everything. And he is both worthy and able to bring God's will to pass. There's lots that we could dwell on here, isn't there? But take a look at the response of those gathered around the throne. The moment the slain but living lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of the one seated upon the throne, the elders, the living creatures and the angels... They don't sit there relaxed and comfortable chatting amongst themselves. Neither do they howl and hoot in joyful euphoria, but they fall down before him, holding tight as they do the prayers of all the saints. And they proclaim his worth. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. You get a sense of it. The gospel of the crucified and risen lamb of God makes all the difference. He is the one who's victorious and he is the one who will bring all things to their completion. It is settled now and forever because he died and has risen. And the heart of all reality is proclaimed and the elders and the living creatures simply fall down before him. John wrote what he saw as a word to the embattled church of the late first century. Behind all the uncertainty and apparent defeat, with external threats and internal compromises, and not even a realistic prospect that they would survive, is the great reality of heaven's throne room. At the centre of reality is a throne and it is not empty. God rules. And the awe and wonder and worship that pervades these scenes is impossible to miss. The holy, almighty, eternal creator is worshipped in heaven. Those around the throne fall down before him and proclaim his worth. He is the creator of all things. By his will and only by his will they existed and were created. And he hands the scroll in his hand, entrusts the execution of his will to the slain but victorious lamb who also is worshipped in heaven. But also is a strange word to use in this context because the worship of the lamb is the worship of the creator which is why every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea exclaims to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever it's a word of comfort amidst uncertainty the opposition just isn't as terrifying as it seems when you know what's really going on behind the scenes. But brothers and sisters, perhaps this morning too, we can be challenged by the reality of this heavenly scene. We have every reason to be joyful and to celebrate how God created laughter and fun. Christians have no business being solemn killjoys, always walking around with solemn faces. But confronted with the reality of God's glory and the worthiness of the lamb who was slain but who has conquered, moved by his spirit, we need to remember in whose presence we are gathered. We don't do awe and wonder and worship well in the 21st century. But perhaps we can be helped by what John saw that day. Will you pray with me? Father, please help us to hear, not just with our ears, and help us to worship not just with our mouths. Let this be a time when we, Father, think hard about who we are and who you are and respond to you in the way that is appropriate because you are God, our creator and our redeemer. And we ask this of you in Jesus' name.